Hail och Säl. You're listening to the... Hold on. You're listening to the... Satan i helvete. So we're starting off with a word from our sponsors, okay? But I promise it will only be a minute. Just a minute. Herkullinen kahvijuusto vahvistaa sisua. Today's sponsor is Dolme brand Joustoleipä. Real Finnish bread cheese. I can think of no better way to start my day than with Dolme brand Joustoleipä. Real Finnish bread cheese. Dice it up and put it to your coffee for a proper northern Fenno-Scandinavian kaffeosta. Or kaffeost, as we say in Norway. Or Sweden, coffee cheese, as you say it in your foreign Welsh tongue from Walhaz, Proto-Germanic, foreigner, Roman. Anyway, coffee cheese, it's the hottest new thing, hottest thing since Hygge, since saunas, the hottest thing since Scandi futurism, some might say. I'm not sure I agree about that. But certainly hotter than dying in an Icelandic lava flow as you pleasure yourself in a boreal reflection of the Pompeii wanker. Just rest assured that you don't have to go quite that far. Starting off your day with a little cheese in your coffee is a lifestyle, a philosophy. A little nugget of the Gesamtkunstwerk that is your life, right? Ah, a world of pleasure awaits you when you drop those little pieces of cheese into your morning joe. Close your eyes and count the leaks, giving that dairy a nice hot coffee bath. Fish it out with a fork and you know it's ready when you squeeze it between your fingers and hear this sound. And then you just dig in and imagine yourself out there in Lapland, watching the reindeer frolicking, munching on that delicious lichen. More cozy, no, perkelin vitu, more functional than a Danish mid-century armchair with a built-in newspaper holder. Two simple ingredients, one cup. A one-cup wonder. The ideal pick-me-up for reindeer herders and moonshiners alike, whether you're running from the cops or stuck in a lifelong struggle with the Department of Agriculture. The Brute Norse community cannot get enough of it. Today we're talking about romantic music. Mythological music, you can consider it maybe nationalist music, as many people have. You can choose to see it that way, but there are people who would contest such a reading. You can also see it as cosmopolitan music, as socialist music, as uh, black music. 
Some consider this music fetishizations of the past, and yet others say that this music is the first truly modern music. And that, my friends, seems to explain everything. But you cannot get reductive with this. There's so much more to say. It is authoritarian music. It is anarchic music. It's difficult, but maybe not as difficult as some make it sound. Perhaps this music transcends those binaries. Transcended music. Total music. Total art. Gesamtkunstwerk. I don't know the answer. But we're going to talk about Richard Wagner, about Wagnerism, with a brilliant Phil Ford, musicologist at the University of Indiana, and one of two weirdologists on the podcast, Weird Studies. So, as always, my name is Erik Stolsen, and you're listening to the Brute Norse podcast, um, where we walk backwards into the future, and this is Wagnerism with Phil Ford. Good evening, everyone. All right. is not the best mic stand so sometimes it sags yeah on its own. yeah I, I have a pretty crappy mic stand here too i just got this yeah. idiotic little <laughs> i didn't i did i didn't invest in uh in a, in a really good mic stand the recorder's okay Mm. And it is running, so um, we can start anytime you like. Oh, fantastic. Welcome to the show, asshole. <laughs> I am very glad to be here, <laughs> asshole. <laughs> For people who don't listen to Weird Studies, um, who listen to your show, uh, that's like kind of a, a bit that got started around the dinner table in my family. It's um, uh, me calling my kids assholes, and it's just turned into a thing that I do. It's, it's 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 what I will be remembered for calling people assholes. So Phil Ford, uh, could you say some something about yourself? What's your credentials? What's your skin in the game here? Um, I am a professor of musicology at Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, uh, and musicology is a somewhat pretentious name to the study of music and music history, music and culture and society, music as an art form, um, basically the scholarly study of music. And most of my professional work has been on post-1945 culture. I have a book out um, about 10 years old called Dig, Sound and Music in Hip Culture, which is an intellectual history of hipness of the idea of counterculture and its relationship to music, which is, of course, an intimate one. And despite that, one of my great, uh, well, for one thing, my deeper history with music, my, my the deeper skin in the game here is also, I'm a musician. I, my original training was as a classical pianist. And 
I still retain the deepest love for music of the Western art music tradition. Um, the, uh, the, the music, that, so the way academia works is that different people have different areas generally chronologically focused that they work on. And I am the 20th, 21st century guy, or one of the 20, 20th, 21st century guys. And the, there are a couple of 19th century music scholars. And generally, we try to stay out of each other's hair, not to trespass on one another's domain. But it so happens that one of my great enthusiasms in classical music is the music of Richard Wagner. And the 19th century music scholars at IU don't really love Wagner, that might be an understatement, uh, have no interest in teaching Wagner except as part of other classes. And I always wanted to do a course on the ring cycle. And so <clears throat> with their kind permission, I've sort of turned that into a little project of mine, something that I do at the Jacob School of Music. I teach courses on Wagner, particularly the ring cycle, because it is such an extraordinary, unique work so rich and powerful and yet also forbidding because our ears, we moderns, including classical musicians who you would think would know this music, even to classical musicians, this music is sometimes a bit baffling to the ear. We don't have it in our ears. It, it, it works according to its own rules. It has its own logic. And with the ring cycle, I think everybody sort of senses that there is some kind of great artistic... I don't know, like a secret or a mystery locked up in that great forbidding bulk, the 16 or so hours it takes for the four operas of the ring cycle to play themselves out. And yet you kind of need a guide. You need somebody to help you walk through those. I mean, I always compare it to like going mountaineering, that uh, people, people want to climb those mountains, but you need a Sherpa. And so my... Ring cycle class, my Wagner classes generally are, I, I think of myself as a kind of Sherpa, uh, assisting people's ascent to the rugged highlands of Wagnerian operatic drama. So that's my background. I, I base, long story short, classical musician who's done a lot of work in popular culture, but who always likes to return to this, this music, music of the Western art tradition, and uh, particularly Wagner. And that is, I suppose, what we're talking about today, Wagner. Yeah, I mean, Wagner has such a, such a strong influence just on uh, on modern uh, popular culture, uh, yeah. in in so many different and and kind of bizarre roundabout ways. So I think that that just makes complete sense. Um, mm. I mean, even in my field, uh, and speaking of which, like uh, with uh, old Norse and medieval studies and stuff like that. Um, I think there are there are definitely scholars who try to stay, uh, you know, stay in their lane. But I think yeah, with medieval studies, especially, um, it's notoriously a field where people do not <laughs> stay in their lane, maybe when they should, uh -huh. you know. And I'm probably one of the people who are guilty of this. Sorry, let me mm. turn my phone on airplane mode so it doesn't buzz all the fucking time. <clears throat> yeah, but. Um, yeah, where was that? Yeah, so so you know, uh, we, we we like to keep things uh, multidisciplinary here. Um, but yeah, Wagner, um, the meanest guy who ever lived, right? Yes, history's greatest monster. I mean, he was kind of a 
was kind of a shitty guy. Now that guy was an asshole uh, in a variety of large and small ways. So what he's largely known for now is being a racist, um, which he was. I mean, there just it's no way around it. He was, he had vile bigotries against Jewish people. Um, everything with Wagner is complicated, right? So when I say that he had a vile bigotry against Jewish people, uh, he also had a long and complicated history with Ju Judaism and Jewish people, um, issued many contradictory remarks, some of which are shocking and practically indistinguishable from the utterances of such as Hitler and Goebbels, uh, and some of which you would not think uh, what you would associate with someone like Wagner. And as it is for that particular issue, so it is for almost every idea or opinion Wagner ever held. An immensely complicated figure, uh, by all accounts, very hard to get on with, and not just for his attitudes about Jewish people or the French. He was at least as bigoted about French people as he was about anyone else. Um, but also... Um, you know, things like in his personal life, his, uh, the, the Ernst Newman four-volume biography of Wagner is well worth reading, partly because it's just an excellent book and partly because of the amount of uh, mordant humor that can be mined from, for example, Wagner's love life, his, uh, his, his relationships, where getting women to feel sorry for him was kind of his move. <laughs> That, that was kind of like his 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 thing, um, you know. I, I I get the feeling that none of us would find him a particularly congenial friend, but probably a very interesting guy. Uh, in any event, his art is always and has been from the very beginning, uh, while since the time he was alive, his art has always been a little bit of a puzzle because it at once invites you to understand it in terms of the kind of volcanic personality and you know, like highly complicated and problematic personality of Wagner himself. And yet the artwork itself is so strange, so overpowered, so um, itself complicated and ambivalent that it seems to reject any single frame or context that you could put it in. Uh, so the Wagner question hangs over practically every note of his music. The question, what do we do with our knowledge of what this man was like, what kind of person he was, uh, when we are encountering works like The Ring Cycle that present us with a vast tableau of myth and psychology, uh, artworks that seem to be telling us deep secrets about our own inner lives. What do we do with that? knowing what we do about the man himself. Mm. Yeah, I've been dipping into that uh, um, Alex Ross book, uh, Wagnerism. Mm. You know, yeah, it's a, t a terrific book. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just surprising to see how many uh, different sorts of people through the ages have kind of claimed Wagner as their own and um, in kind of, yeah. I guess, very forgotten and, and unexpected ways. Like, um, he's he's been cherished by, like, any any figure you can imagine like uh, on the yeah. pl political spectrum or like across you know ethnicities and beliefs and you name it like any ideological tendency you name it it has at some point claimed wagner for itself uh what 
Ross shows us is that there have been not only fascist Wagners, which there have been, largely thanks to uh, a particularly loathsome intellectual named Houston Chamberlain, who uh, a, a straight-up fascist who helped midwife the kind of connection between the Wagner clan, um, the Wagner family after Wagner's death, and the emerging Third Reich. Um, <coughs> pardon me. But uh, it's not only um, that kind of association, but also like there is a socialist Wagner, a gay Wagner, a black Wagner, a Jewish Wagner. Believe it or not, in fact, it's a, there's a sort of sub-literature of Jewish musicians who were Wagner's greatest champions, who also had to wrestle with problems of his music. So, for example, Gustav Mahler, one of the greatest symphonists of all time uh, and one of Wagner's greatest heirs, somebody who learned a huge amount of his own compositional art from studying Wagner and conducting Wagner. He was, in his lifetime, Mahler was better known as a conductor than as a composer. And it was Mahler who I think first really unmistakably pointed out how the character of Mime from who appears almost entirely in the third opera of the Tetralogy, Siegfried, uh, how Mime is effortlessly interpretable as an anti-Semitic stereotype. Mahler himself was Jewish and he felt this keenly as somebody who is a, the, the recipient of a kind of racist scorn. He was sensitive to it. It's like he, he had a kind of, um, it's like a carbon monoxide detector. Yeah. Right. Like a, a, of, of racism. And he knew it when he saw it. And, it, you know, and, and in the character of Mime, he's like, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. And yet uh, Mahler's, Mahler also asked what composers were most important to him. He said, um, Beethoven, then Wagner, then nothing. Wow. You yeah. know, for, for, for Mahler, there was no one greater than Wagner. And even if he could perceive some kind of malice in the person of Mime, some anti-Jewish malice, he couldn't just say, well, then I won't conduct this music. I don't want to be complicit with it. I don't want to associate myself or dirty my hands with this stuff. Um, he didn't allow himself the luxury of washing his hands of this difficult, problematic, but brilliant art. He saw it as his obligation as a Jewish artist to continue wrestling with it. Now, that's not necessarily the answer that contemporary Jewish musicians might come up with in their relationship to Wagner. It's not something you could hold up as a norm, as something everybody should do. Uh, <clears throat> but I think that the, you know, basically what Ross had found in writing Wagnerism is something that the playwright, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, the guy who wrote the play Angels in America, um, Tony Koshner. For those who are interested in learning a little bit about the ring cycle, just a quick overview, something to get some of the big themes in your ears, I can recommend very highly a one-hour radio documentary put out by the Radio Lab guys uh, called The Ring and I. So just Google that, The Ring and I. It's a kind of Radio Lab special. 
and Jab Abinrut, the um, the host and the guy who put that show together, interviewed a bunch of people, including Kushner. And Kushner is a Jewish, a gay Jewish playwright who uh, is no stranger to issues of um, uh, anti-Semitic hatred, and is also himself an anti-apologetic. Uh, not anti. That's not even a word. Uh, an unapologetic. Uh, or perhaps at least slightly apologetic, but mostly unapologetic Wagnerite. And he says something like, this music is too good to let the, I mean, I forget how he put it, but something like, you know, it's, this is, it's too good to give up on. Uh, I might turn and say it's too, this music is too good, too great, too rich, too powerful, uh, simply to leave to those, uh, racists who might wish to find their own beliefs mirrored in it um that uh, if we believe art is uh, the meaning of art is formed at least partly in the conversations that we have about it conversations like this one mm -hmm. um then we have to also understand that Neg critical negotiations wrestlings with grapplings with this music such as Mahler's own wrestling with it is absolutely vital to constituting what these works are and what they mean. And when you just sort of say, well, you know, I, it's just safer not to touch this music. Uh, then you're kind of leaving it to the bad guys to decide what this music means. And Ross's book, Wagnerism is basically a history of people who said, this music is too good to leave to the bad guys. We have to find a Jewish Wagner. We have to find a gay Wagner. We have to find a socialist Wagner. We have to find any number of different Wagners that people have, in fact, found. I, I, this this resonates a lot with me, and of course, a lot of the stuff that we uh, um, we cover on the podcast is all about like the nuances. Surely, nobody is into like uh, Scandinavian uh, medieval literature because uh, people depicted in the sagas are such great guys, you know? <laughs> well, this is what's fascinating, right? To note that there are so many gray zones. I thought it was very interesting also with, uh, with the Mahler stuff and the, um, the question about the anti-Semitic, uh, um, you know, stereotypes that may or may not be in Wagner. Because uh, mm -hmm. this is also a, like a recurring theme uh, that, um, that has kind of, it, it, it probably also like yeah, helped cement a lot of these notions just in the uh in the popular mindset just this discussion of it i've even seen um you know these dwarven characters uh in mm -hmm. in yeah. um, in Wagner's operas that are like these kind of yeah, shrewd the yeah yeah and mime is 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 just such a a character yeah sorry i interrupted you so there are people who who have even like extended that and like they look for uh, anti-Semitic tropes also in medieval literature, like uh, like uh, mm. Old Norse depictions of dwarves, which is maybe uh, taking it a little bit too far, I think, because who not a lot of people on medieval Iceland had ever encountered Jewish people in their entire life, mm. you know, because there mm. weren't really mm. any Jews on Iceland at the time. Um, they'd surely been exposed to, um, secondhand at least, to like medieval attitudes towards uh, Judaism and, and things like that. Maybe in a roundabout way, but it wouldn't feel like very relevant. You know, it's. I think that maybe you know what sometimes this runs uh, the risk of doing is kind of monopolizing. I don't know some traits or like some perceived vulgarity, and like Ross talks about this as well in in the Wagnerism book that um, 
you know, the stereotypes become internalized in a way. And you start to see them where they may or may not be, basically. It becomes like this kind of feedback loop, you know, of yeah. where a certain set of traits become uh, monopolized by the stereotype. I'm also just kind of skeptical of the notion that dwarves, or how they've been depicted at least through the ages, is reducible to, I don't know, a thinly veiled anti-Semitic metaphor. It does, doesn't also seem like a very healthy line of thinking either, I think. Well, it becomes the only thing anybody wants to talk about. And as if, as if a context like that could possibly exhaust what any work of art has to say, much less something as enormous and complicated as Wagner's Ring Cycle. Yeah, I've, I've been trying to dip into more of the music because as we've talked about before, um, my, my relationship to Wagner is like very fragmented. You know, I came from a musical family and stuff like that. And Wagner was not like the big composer uh, in my upbringing with my grandfather or my dad or anything like that. Um, but I've been, you know, it's funny like how when you listen to it, and I tried to uh, to really devote myself to listening through Die Valkyrie while driving upstate for a dentist appointment, having shattered my molar while biting into a fucking jerky stick. Anyway, it left me with about three hours in my car, which is not enough time to really finish it, but it's such an amazing piece of art with all of its nuances. There are sections, of course, that didn't really feel like they were giving me anything, and then suddenly you notice those little light motifs starting to sneak up on you, yeah. and then the whole thing starts to breathe and moves you and gives you chills, and it becomes kind of a, an emotional roller coaster, right? You know, when you start really understanding the pacing of everything. And then, of course, Ride of the Valkyries comes on, and suddenly you're the most dangerous maniac on the highway. <laughs> <laughs> suddenly find yourself driving at 120 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Light motifs, of course, are central features of Wagner's music. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about those kinds of peculiarities. I find the idea of light motifs very interesting. Absolutely. I'll tell you, you know, I, I was sort of, I was um, using the analogy of a Sherpa, somebody who helps guide people to the high places of, of this difficult art, um, or at least what feels very difficult at the beginning. It's actually one of those deals where you kind of have to get the hang of listening to it. You have to figure out what you're listening to. And once you've kind of got the picture, and it's not that hard, it's just sort of a gestalt shift. And it does have to do with light motifs, which I'll talk about in a sec. Uh, once you do that, then it sort of like all falls into place. But until it does, um, the experience of listening to Wagner for a lot of people, a lot of people might have a similar kind of feeling like, I, I want to get to know this music better. I'll put on Valkyrie. It's probably the best known of the four ring cycle operas and for good reasons full of wonderful music um and then what they're confronted with is something like um the i, I read some environmentalist writer talking about the wall of green effect like when you don't spend any time in a forest you don't know anything about the plants the, the flora and fauna of a forest, then when you walk into a forest, all you see is a wall of green, just an undifferentiated uh, and blank, effectively featureless landscape of just trees and trees and trees and trees, just endless greenery, right? But, you know, if you know the different kinds of trees and so on, then the forest actually has a lot to tell you. And I think people have a similar kind of wall of green effect with Wagner because Wagner doesn't work quite the same way as say you know a Mozart opera 
not not to make a false cultural comparison, but Mozart opera is going to have something of the same logic as a Broadway show, which is to say there's numbers, there's emotional high points in the story that are going where the story is going to kind of screech to a halt and some character or maybe a couple of characters are going to you know walk up to the footlights and deliver uh, a song an expression of like you know for like a big i love you kind of song right or aria as it's called in opera uh and this happens in mozart just as it does in a Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, musical. Wagner believed that the thing that opera needs to serve is drama. That was his big word, drama. And for him, drama is not the plot, right? Drama, or at least it might include the plot, but it's not just the mechanics of the plot. And it certainly isn't just the mechanics of like, numbers of like okay so and so we need a big love number here we need a big love duet got to put in the love duet he's like if we're serving the drama the drama is like the representation of human emotions and situations then stopping action just to unburden yourself of an emotional soliloquy is completely unlifelike nobody does that this is one reason why so many people dislike watching musical films is because it seems completely unrealistic for people to just start bursting into song and wagner was uh very much of that mind so his idea is that he needed uh, and this is right around the time that he, he was a political revolutionary people find this surprising but he was like a left-wing anarchist as a young man joining in the saxon rebellion or revolt of 1848-49 um he was actually helping the revolutionaries uh, according to a long unsubstantiated story passing out grenades at the barricades in dresden uh and when all of that went belly up he fled to switzerland and lived as a political exile for many years uh, with a price on his head and in those years in the early years from about 49 to 53 he did no composing at all he did a lot of writing and a lot of theorizing and mostly he was lying fallow trying to figure out okay it's so like his earlier operas even though they pr put pressure on that number system they still were more or less conventional. But he's like, no, I need a different way of writing music where the music doesn't break into these discrete numbers that you could excerpt and like perform on a song recital. The, the music has to be a faithful mirror of the drama and the drama has to follow the kind of the, the seismograph. You know, you can almost think of Wagner's drama as being like a seismograph of the human heart. Uh, of, of all the shifting moods and passions that a human heart is prone to, right? And um, so he's like, what, what kind of music would be appropriate to that? And what's appropriate to it is a kind of music that is often associated, that um, uh, sometimes is associated with the term uh, endless melody. Uh, it's it, it just kind of flows and goes, you know? And... There are no hard divisions between the utterances of characters. Uh, characters, especially in the ring cycle, will usually sort of talk one at a time. There's not so many big ensemble numbers where people are singing together. But nevertheless, 
he's trying to write music that is the outward expression of this endlessly shifting and mutable and plastic inner state. And so for this reason, this music just kind of flows. There's no hard boundaries. You never get the feeling like, okay, well, that was an ending, and now we're going to begin the next section. And it's a general principle in art. Charles Rosen, the pianist, pointed this out, that if you take something away, some aspect of structure that people are used to, like, for example, divisions between numbers, you have to add some structure elsewhere. And what Wagner did his great innovation was to come up with a light motive system. A light motive was not his word. Someone else came up with that, but it means leading motive. And a light motive might be something very short, like, which is the gold light motive from Das Rheingold, the first of the Ring Tetralogy. And something as simple as that, it's a C major arpeggio in a certain kind of arrangement. Uh, Endlessly recombinable, endlessly variable. You can change it up. You can twist these little light motives one way or another. You can associate them. You can disassociate them. They take on almost a life of their own, almost a dramatic life. So like you can hear, um, for example, how the gold light motive is twisted around and turns into a slightly different light motive, the ring motive, because this is all about a sacred gold at the bottom of the Rhine River that an evil dwarf named, or Nibelung named Alberich steals, and he is able to steal it because he renounces love and he cares only for power, uh, power and wealth. And so he takes this holy gold and he um, through the power of his cursing love, he is able to twist it into the shape of a ring. And this ring gives him ultimate power, just like in Lord of the Rings. And we can hear how this twisting of the, the, the purity of the gold into this foul object, this ring, you can hear it played out in the relationship between that little light motive that I sang out of tune a moment ago uh, to another light motive that's based on it. This is a kind of a variation of it, the ring motive. And you can hear the ring motive coming back again and again through all four operas of the ring cycle. And each time it does, or any light motive does, it is giving us a little bit of a sense of the passage. It gives it shape. It gives it a context. It gives it a structure. It gives it a memory. Everything that is happening on stage. Now we can remember previous instances of these light motives and that can become the context to help us understand what's happening on the stage in front of us right now. So long story short, leitmotiv technique is this way that Wagner had of giving us some audible structure, something to hold on to, so we don't just fall into that wall of green thing. So it's not just an endless kind of stream of consciousness monologue. The leitmotivs shape the experience. And once you get the trick of hearing them and listening for them and understanding the way that they're telling us things about the action, then all of a sudden Wagner is not some kind of very obscure uh, and difficult music, but the most communicative, most straightforward, most direct kind of artistic utterance imaginable. So what you said there uh, first about the, um, about the musicals and like the, the numbers, um, just reminded me of how like utterly psychopathic some of those, uh, um, musicals, uh, musical films uh, can feel like, uh, if yeah. not, especially if they're not winking at you, like uh, I don't know, like Rocky Horror Picture <laughs> Show or something like that. You know, 
Um, yeah. In contrast, that's what makes Wagner so interesting because the drama unfolds in such a magnificent and subtle way, and there's something really vernacular about it. Um, like, I'm not the first one to make this comparison, but uh, uh, people have tried to compare um, the leitmotif to, say, Yoik, which is, uh, you know, the chant of the of the Sami peoples in, like, northern mm, Finno-Scandinavia. Interesting. Which is similar because it it consists of a set musical phrase, you know, not dissimilar to kind of, I don't know, stylistically to yodeling. I don't well, it's not, it's not like yodeling at all, <laughs> but uh, it's often tied to a specific identity. You don't really uh, yoik about people or things. Uh, you yoik the person or the thing. Like, it has a very direct representational value, like a, a presence in it. Huh. So uh, it can be completely abstract, like it's just like the melody represents somebody, or it's, or it's almost like a, more an imitation of like what like an animal sounds like or things like that. Oh, that's really interesting. The pacing and rhythm might uh, um, impersonate the gait of a certain animal, for instance, or a person, or their demeanor, or something like that. It depends on kind of the the regional styles, but yeah, it's not it's not a comparison that like you know it it doesn't do either of them justice necessarily. But if just as an example of uh, how organic the light motif appears to um, to the air. That's an interesting. Uh, analogy. I'd never heard about that. That's very interesting. I mean, what they have in common is the idea that it is a kind of musical signification that goes beyond merely representation, that you're not just representing something, it's not singing about something, that you were singing the thing, um, that the, 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 the song utterance is, it embodies the thing that you're singing about. And, you know, Wagner did a lot of research in order to write the Ring Cycle in those years that he was not writing much music, but theorizing and, and thinking um, in the early years of his exile. Uh, he spent a lot of time hunting down old sources uh, and, and, you know, traveling to libraries and private collections to find manuscripts of... Um, the uh things like the Volsung saga and yeah he and it's sometimes hard to reconstruct exactly what he knew it's interesting to conjecture that possibly he might have known something about this um this tradition yeah i know what you mean though because like uh um like i find myself often when i'm reading about wagner reading about these operas um you know um it's this kind of uh, gratifying uh, thing, you know, if you're a complete nerd uh, to um, uh, to discover, like, uh, works of art where people are, like, referencing stuff. I don't know, there's some kind of, like, perverse kind of geeky impulse or some, some kind of collector's thing where, like... Oh, absolutely. There's, like, a need or a joy associated with uh, identifying mm -hmm. and collecting intertext, you know, and, and references... I've said it on the show before, but um, Valhalla Rising, for instance, you know, there are shared motifs in the movie that uh, give the impression that the director has uh, done a little bit of research, read the uh, legendary sagas or something like that. Turns out that that wasn't really the case. It's just, uh, it just makes use of similar storytelling devices, which fit the context, or um, maybe he intuited in some sort of way. So it might be coincidental, it might not be, but who cares you know it works yeah um it doesn't really matter if we could find out whether wagner knew about this or that tradition uh 
it, it would be cool. But uh, this is, you know, he, there, there are many ways in which Wagner seems to be channeling something. Uh, that, however, surely McLeanish and um, and and New Agey that sounds. He, he, I think, certainly felt that he himself was not simply learning about uh, a domain of culture and mythology. I think he was aware of participating in it in some kind of more intimate way. I mean, certainly he lived long enough with his materials. It took him almost thirty years to write the ring cycle from beginning to end 28 years i believe um and so you know he lived in that world for a long time uh it's interesting to see how you know he in no way is a kind of respectful historicist artist like the way we might expect a contemporary artist to treat folk material that they're borrowing for a piece of art um, we might expect the artist to remain color within the lines of that tradition, remain respectfully adherent to its basic, uh, its basic shapes. But Wagner was very happy to substitute mythemes of his own, to add uh, in all kinds of embroidery to these stories of the Norse gods that turn out to be like really powerful mythic ideas like they i've seen people argue that they add substantially to the myth that wagner's not just representing the myth that he is a that he's um a scald a, a, a you know a a bard a, a a sing a singer of these songs who also um is fully a part of those songs so i'll give you an example um one of the leitmotifs that you hear about a million times throughout the ring cycle is Wotan's spear leitmotif. So Wotan is the king of the gods. Uh, Odin, as, as uh, he's probably more likely known to your listeners, um, Wotan in Wagner's German. And I think it's fairly traditional to picture Wagner, uh, rather Wotan, with a spear, and it is also traditional to think of Wotan as a god who upholds laws and contracts. But it was Wagner's idea that Wotan's spear has engraved on its haft the runes of all the contracts that seal and bind his world. And so he can't, and so the Wotan's dilemma, I mean, to boil down a very long story, to make a very long story short, Wotan's dilemma is that his arch nemesis, Albrecht, has this ring of power. And Wotan, with the help of, another, of a half-god, Loge, uh, a god of fire and lies, um, is able to trick Albrecht out of the gold and out of this ring. And Albrecht curses the ring saying anybody who claims the ring for themselves will uh, suffer doom. And what happens is that the giants that Wotan has instructed to build Valhalla for him, it's time to pay them. And the only way he can pay them ultimately is to give them 
the ring that he's tricked out of Albrecht, and we can see the curse immediately start working as one giant, one of the brother giants kills his the other brother. Um, and Wotan's dilemma is that he needs the ring, <laughs> but not only is the ring now cursed, but also by the very contracts graven upon his spear, if he claims the ring for himself, he's breaking his own contract with the giants. So he has to figure out how to get the ring without it being a function of his own will. And there's all kinds of metaphysical depths and dimensions to that, right? But one way that Wagner had of symbolizing, instantiating Wotan's dilemma was to add this little detail of, which is, so far as I know, not in any of the source materials, uh, any of the medieval manuscripts, uh, is the idea that it's when Wotan, that Wotan's spear would break if he broke his word. And it is the breaking of the spear that leads to the breaking of Wotan's power. Um, it's a really, you know, it's not authentic, but it's a really cool intuition of Wagner's. And there are many such moments. Um, he played fast and loose with a lot of characters and incidents uh, and meanings. And yet his inventions seem not so much to be, you know, distortions of a tradition, but part of the tradition itself, at least from a certain point of view, a point of view that I'm friendly to. So uh, in uh, circles of medievalism, philology, um, archaeology, uh, like Wagner is al always used negatively, you know, as a misrepresentation, uh, as something that is kind of self-evidently gaudy and passe. Yes. You know, something kind of like Victorian almost. Right. It's used kind of similarly to like how one might use Victorian, which is kind of odd because I find that uh, modern people uh, in their own uh, idiosyncratic way are quite Victorian themselves. Indeed. Like the, the Wagnerian, it has become sort of an inescapable feature of, uh, of the entire aesthetic, say, of, uh, of you know, kind of the modern Norse revival. Uh, for better or worse, and often not necessarily even for the worse. Like it, it, it serves its own little purpose, but it also does not like really give credit to the to the genius of uh, of his work, right? As as you illustrated very well uh, right now, because uh, a lot of the the logic here and uh, the assumptions that he makes about Norse mythology uh, really does check out. Like uh, the gods are always stuck in this uh, you know situation where they're between a rock and a hard place. Uh, my old uh, master, um, the barbarian of Bergen, Eldar Heda, always talks about how the, the the cornerstone of like the the Norse understanding of the world is that there is no such thing as free lunch. There's always like uh, everything has some negative consequence. Like it's always um, the the world is just like held together uh, and and is created through this this tension. You know, the 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 world was created literally from a murder, and things are just kind of inescapably tied together in such a way that um, every time the gods try to get the upper hand somehow, uh, they have to sacrifice something else that makes them more vulnerable and ends up biting them in the ass in the long run. And that does seem very, <laughs> very Wagnerian. Indeed. Yeah, probably a very good reason why Wagner was attracted to this material. It was a certain kind of um, affinity, dare I say spiritual affinity. Um, there's some truth that was important for him to express that is also a truth that lies in these myths. 
for example, that there is no free lunch. I mean, it would be rather reductive to say so, but nevertheless, it's not untrue to say that the entire uh, immense bulk of the ring cycle boils down to the idea that there is no free lunch. Maybe we can talk more about Wotan. Oh, absolutely. So one of the reasons that led me to invite you on was actually because initially I wanted to make a podcast about another asshole, Alistair Crowley, of all people. Uh, the British occultist, uh, mountaineer, uh, writer of erotic poetry, um, curry enthusiast, <laughs> many other things. Um, but, uh, you know, he's, you know, Crowley is very interested, you know, in his kind of occult practice. He's very interested in correspondences, uh, very much in line with the rest of the Western mystery tradition, for that matter. But uh, he's he's very hung up on, on mythological comparisons and so on. And so I was just, I think... I was reading, like, uh, Libra 777 and the Book of Thoth. I kept getting, like, slightly annoyed or baffled or confused by, like, uh, his uh, his specific use or assertions about Scandinavian mythology uh, that kind of made it clear to me that, uh, first and foremost, Crowley was not very um, familiar with Norse mythology. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Um, but one of the things that initially kind of confused me was that in his uh, tables of correspondences uh, he refers to Odin and Wotan as two distinct figures like not in a direct way, he doesn't explain it but Odin and Wotan have their own spots in the uh, in the tables and clearly like their correspondences are different I didn't know yeah. that actually I didn't huh. realize this at first because of course I was kind of uh, looking at this from this kind of snobbish uh, philologist's mindset where I'm like, well, what do we really know about the continental Wotan character anyway, you know? It's all, mostly, mostly all of the mythological texts are from, from Iceland and we're not, you know, not sure that all of these uh, traits were shared uh, across the, you know, the Germanic territories. But then I realized, of course, what Crowley is talking about is the Wagnerian Wotan. He makes reference to Wagner and Wotan all the time in his writings. Uh, like, uh, he, he references Wotan's spear, Siegfried as kind of the uh, as the younger generation kind of overthrowing the old, stuff like that, which is also kind of a central theme of Crowley's writings, generally speaking, when he's talking about the old and new eon and things like that. And when he's talking about the tarot card, the fool, he seems completely ignorant, really, of um, of adjacent motifs in uh, Scandinavian folklore, which there are a lot of, actually. But he says, for some freaking reason, that there's nothing of that sort. So clearly not a connoisseur of uh, Scandinaviana, to put it that way. So in spite of this, in the curriculum of the AA, one of his other magical orders, he instructs students to read Scandinavian and Teutonic sagas generally. That's a quote, which is odd because I don't think that he read a lot of Icelandic stuff, but he might be talking about like like German Heldensagen or something like that, you know, the chivalric kind of medieval romances. He might have been talking about like the, the Nibelungenlied, for example. Yeah, yeah. The, he may have had that in mind or something like that in mind. Yeah, and that seems seems to check out with his kind of Wagnerian interest, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, he does something very... I mean, what you were just saying about how he treats Wotan as a separate personage um, and seems to be thinking of Wagner's Wotan, he does the same thing with Parsifal. I mean, I think he's... he. Had, I think Crowley had read um, uh, Wolfram von Aschenbach's uh, courtly tale of, of Parsifal. I think he had read some of that medieval literature, but I think for him, Parsifal, 
as a spiritual figure, as a figure that might actually show up in your spiritual and magical practice, for him is Wagner's Parsifal. Um, I think, I mean, apropos our earlier part of a conversation, I think Crowley is somebody who had no trouble at all understanding that an artist, uh, not quite a contemporary of his, but somebody who, uh, um, whose lifetime at least somewhat overlapped with his own, uh, more or less contemporary artist. I think he had no trouble believing that a contemporary artist might be in touch with some ancient and eternal current of uh, spirituality, of godhead or godhood. Um, and yeah, had no trouble. I, did. I mean, I, I know that Crowley viewed Parsifal as an initiatory text. In the, in the same way that, you know, the Book of the Law is an initiatory text, which is to say a text that tells you, that reveals uh, true mysteries, like truly reveals mysteries pertaining to the fundamental nature of reality. I know that uh, that is about as alien a way of looking at art as could be imagined in the Contemporary Academy. Uh, pretty sure that... Um, philologists working in medieval Scandinavian literature are like humanities academics everywhere. They're not, for the most part, thinking of artworks that are capable of channeling ancient mystic truths. Uh, but that is, I think, very much the way Crowley viewed it. And I think it's possible that Wagner saw himself as doing something of that sort. Although, again, you have to contend with the welter of contradictory material that came out of Wagner's own mouth and can be perhaps difficult to figure out exactly what Wagner thought of all this. But yeah, Crowley, uh, that's a really interesting insight that for Crowley, Wotan, the Wagnerian Wotan is a distinct, uh, like a distinct deity. That's a very interesting notion. Yeah, and I, I mean like... Um... You see the same thing with uh, with like uh, with Jung too with his uh, Wotan essay, which I haven't read in ages. But um, it's it's clear that like uh, in that case too, it's like it's a Wagnerian Wotan figure uh, that can be in some regards, you know, both recognizable and difficult to recognize uh, with uh, uh, like in the in the actual Norse texts because I think a lot of uh, a lot of the time uh, in the Norse um, literature, often uh, uh, Odin is much more of this kind of sneaky, shifty fella, you know? He's kind of this kind of uh, divine hobo walking around, you know, <laughs> uh, tricking people. And uh, and he right. has this kind of like mercura... Mer uh, sorry, my Norwegian mouth is not engineered for these uh, sounds. For these Mediterranean words like mercurial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, he has this, like, very, like, mysterious and kind of, like, roguish aspect to him, um, which uh, I think yeah, many people like to imagine, like, Wotan as more of this kind of, uh, this powerful, uh, royal, kingly figure, which he also right. is in, in Norse literature. Sometimes. Well, Wagner is alive to those ambiguities as well. Like the way the first time we meet Wotan, he is asleep before the newly constructed Valhalla, and we hear this immensely dignified brass chorale, the, um, which I'm unfortunately I'm nowhere near a piano, so I can't play it for mm. you. But uh, 
by and incidentally, apropos our earlier conversation about light motives, the Valhalla motive is another variation on the gold and ring light motives, hmm. just transformed in a different way. And the reason I'm bringing this up is this music is so full of godly pomp. Uh, to, to use an expression Votan himself uses in Valkyrie, where he curses his own godhood. It's like away with godly pomp. He's, he, and he, curse, he curses his very existence. Um, he sees through his own delusions of grandeur. But the music, when we first encounter Votan, Votan's music and indeed his, his motivation on the stage, the way he is on the stage, is full of hubris he's so he's like i'll never be unhappy again (laughs) (laughs) we know that's not true um and so like this is music that's designed to be beautiful and yet in the midst of it is shining out a little bit of its own lie yeah and photon is by turns noble and shifty he will contradict himself completely like in uh, the third act of Siegfried where he rouses Erda for the last time to consult with her about what he should do with his problems. Um, and no sooner does he wake her up and she's like, whoa, you have fucked this whole situation up, Votan. You have fucked it up so bad. He's like, yeah, well, who cares what you think anyway? I never wanted to ask you. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> Clearly clearly this is a very human god right mm. acting not as some you know the the stereotype it would be of Votan is this kind of cosmic stuffed shirt this impossibly noble uh being that embodies everything we think god should be but in fact uh he is as frail and damaged and insane as any of us probably more so which is one reason why he is such a terrific character well yeah but i'm like oh my god like um so uh, this uh this this kind of schlocky hubristic um you know as you said divine pomp i think i think when people talk like negatively about wagnerism or uh, wagnerism um in such a sense, that's often what they're referring to, right? And maybe yes. that is just like the problem here is actually not uh, Wagner, like the Wagneric itself. It's a, it's the superficial reading of it, you know, to just not yes. see see beyond those appearances. And it's something that you see sometimes also with, uh, I don't know, like neo-pagan thinkers or stuff like that who are incapable of uh, of seeing kind of like the the ketchup stains on the on the divine <laughs> shirts, you know. Um, yeah. and, uh, and like, they'll say that, oh, the gods are these kind of very elevated, uh, Dionysian, no, not like, n- not strictly not Dionysian, very like yeah. Apollonic, faultless yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. figures, uh, very one dimensional. Um, and, uh, and I'm kind of like wondering, are we reading the same texts? Like, mm. are, are we reading the same texts about the, like the, the, the thieving, sister fucking uh farting <laughs> pantheon here like these people have like pulled like wool over their eyes or something like that yeah well uh, humanity scholars love to remind us 
quite rightly, how often we can treat art as a kind of Rorschach blot to confirm our biases and we can make of art a kind of sock puppet that we can make say whatever we want it to say. They're quite right about that. They only err when they forget that they themselves are human beings and therefore prone to do the exact same thing. Yeah, maybe I'm just uh, hung up on this because I'm deep, deep down inside. I am myself a complete degenerate or something. Aren't we all? You know, yeah, I mean, why deny one's humanity? Well, if you aren't at least a little bit of a degenerate, what the hell are you doing listening to Wagner? Like this, there's a reason why, like one of the Wagnerisms that Alex Ross excavates is the decadent aestheticist Wagner. The French decadents of the late 19th century loved Wagner. Wagner was everything to them. And they were very aware of like, there is a kind of a, there's a, you know, what's that line of Hegel's from the crooked tube? crooked timber of humanity nothing straight was ever uh, grown something like that um you know the decadent saw very clearly that wagner was a faithful mirror to their own crooked timber their own crooked humanity and um that's not a bug that's a feature you know but if you approach wagner the thing is that everybody expects to find a kind of witless, bombastic affirmation of what? Of godliness or nationality, nationalism, or what have you. Uh, and yet, actually, what Wagner shows you is the twists in your own soul. And if you can't see the twists in your own soul, which unfortunately is a fairly widespread ailment, then all you're going to hear is bombast and pomp, and you're going to completely misunderstand this music. Yeah, I mean, this makes me think about, say, uh, uh, kind of, I've, I've said this on the podcast a million times, but, it, you know, I can say it again, I guess. Everybody imagines, like, the Third Reich as being extremely hung up on Norse mythology. They didn't really give that much of a rat's ass about it, but they were really interested in stuff like like the Nibelungenlied. Mm. Which is quite ironic because, uh, well, the, the entire thing there is that everything goes to shit due to people's own, like, hubris. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, Nazis not getting the point there. <laughs> That's a good example. That's a good example. Yeah, engaging with art, real art, powerful art, like Wagner's, is or should be a somewhat humbling experience to find things that you might, feel you keep hidden on the inside inner experiences to find them on the outside up there on stage your innermost deviant and twisted thoughts put in the mouth of Votan or some other figure that can be a little bit uh i don't know maybe alarming or maybe liberating you know i mean for me at any rate one of the great pleasures of art is the pleasure of a certain kind of empathy, you know, feeling like, oh, this little inner state that I find myself in, or maybe, you know, some problem that I have or something that's hanging me up is not just, I'm not just locked in my own little self-enclosed world with that thing. It's not just me. Someone else has been here before. And they expressed it 
you know, they, they put it up on stage. Doesn't mean that art exists to explain those things or even to represent them. But again, it's, like, it's sort of like the yoiks that you were talking about. Is that right? Yoik? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that it's that it's not representing, it's 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 enacting, it's being that thing. Mm. To find some part of yourself enacted, to find it living its own life outside, you know, it's like encounter finding your own heart beating on a city street corner somewhere, just running into it. Oh hello. <laughs> An alarming but perhaps wonderful experience. Yeah, I mean that's why I didn't ever get into fantasy literature, uh, but I got really into like mythological texts, old uh, ancient texts. That's why I always return to the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, because I feel like uh, there are a few like miseries that I have experienced that aren't already like expressed, you mm. know, thousands of years ago, like by some some asshole in, <laughs> in the Middle East or something like that, you know? And, uh, yeah, the same applies to, like, the sagas and stuff like that. And they're just, like, uh, rife with, uh, with human experience, right? Just, uh, and, and there's, never, there's never anybody in there who's, like, uh, in that kind of reductionistic, uh, often modern heroic sense where uh, the protagonist is, is a good guy, you know? You know, he uh, he's, might be a decent man in his culture or whatever and he uh and he uh but he has to respond to all of like his own personal flaws and the flaws of his culture and uh and even like the worst assholes in the saga you can uh, you can understand where they're coming from you can understand why they have no choice but to act in a certain way even though it, it's a it's in a you know tragic and dumb situation that should never have happened in the first place you know like i wrote this essay called uh, no better than the gods that's a great title i mean if the idea is that like uh the gods are like this this exemplar of of human activity and like they create the prototype for uh for all of our behaviors like it's very hubristic to to assume that we could ever uh kind of surpass them in a way and also when you have a mythology that presents them as these deeply flawed and fucked up figures I think that the implications there are very interesting. You know, it's not like people talk like loftily about uh, becoming like gods. We are already like gods just in our default behaviors, you know. <laughs> We're like gods, and that's not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you consider the track record of the gods. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah. 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 I think one contemporary habit of mind that gets in the way of digging all this stuff is a certain contemporary assumption that to be great and to be good the same thing wagner insistently raises the possibility that you can be great without being good at all he was not a very good man he had his plot he had his positive sides he was fond of and kind to animals for example um but he wasn't a very good man but I have no trouble saying that the art he created was great with a capital G. Um, the figures in the sagas are not necessarily the reason those sagas were written were not to memorialize good men. They were to memorialize great men. Yeah. And women for that matter. Um, although it's a pretty masculine world, the world of the sagas. 
it is but uh-huh. the, but it, it is it is also uh, a genre where like uh, you know this uh what is that uh that saying you know behind every like great man there's a greater woman and their women are always right, goading right, the right. dudes to uh, to go kill people and calling it's true shots. it's it's true you see the same sort of thing also in um in uh the ring cycle the character of fricka is very interesting Votan's wife who is often dismissed as a kind of a scold harridan a dislikable character nobody's favorite character is fricka and yet i find her a very powerful very noble and very interesting figure even though she's not actually on stage that much she, we see a bit of her in rheingold and then she has an unforgettable appearance at the beginning of act two in De Valkyrie. And it's the last time we see her where she has the mother of all marital spats with Votan, where she basically points out to him that he's created this whole grandiose plan in his head where he's going to create a man who is possessed of free will who will win the ring for himself. Um, But then Votan is going to, basically it's almost like taking a rat and putting the rat in a maze where there's only one place the rat can run to get the cheese. And the cheese in this case is a sword that Votan has left in a a tree uh, for the hero Siegmund to find. And and, And this is the sword that can kill the dragon, Fafner, Used to be a giant, now a dragon. Never explained. Um, and uh, Fricka is the one that points out, he's like, this is a childish ruse that cannot possibly be believed by anybody. You were not getting around the prohibition, but against the, you're not, you're not finding an escape clause on the runes that you've engraved upon your spear. Um, all you've done is to put your will in another body. No one is fooled by this. It's she who really reveals to him how empty and vain all of his plans and strivings are. It's his argument with Fricka that sends him into a tailspin where he renounces godly pomp, this famous moment in Act Two, where he suddenly realizes the emptiness and futility of all of his projects and designs. And so this is a really interesting twist on the old behind every great man, there's a greater woman idea. Behind Votan at the beginning of Act Two, before he has his argument with Fricka, is as fat and sassy as they come. He is still full of all of the pomposity and hubris that we see when we first see him dozing before the newly constructed Valhalla, right? After he is no longer able to hold these illusions in his mind. It is Fricka who opens his eyes. It is Fricka who, who allows him, and by extension, the entire world of the ring cycle to uh, undergo the disillusionment and renewal that it has to. And yet she's only on stage for, I don't know, 18 minutes or something. Hugely important figure. So, a little practical tip, a little pro tip for any of you out here listening and thinking, is there a recording of the ring cycle that I should check out? Um, there are many fine recordings of the ring cycle, but there's one, the most recent Metropolitan Opera recording of the ring cycle where Stephanie Blythe sings uh, Fricka. 
and her performance in that second act of De Valkyrie is unforgettable and truly raises Frecka up to the, the, the proper tier of godhood that she deserves, <laughs> that, you know, she is true. She, the, the true grandeur of that character comes out. Uh, sorry, I went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but uh, that's a favorite topic of mine. Yeah, it's a, no, it's a lovely tangent. <clears throat> but yeah, well, I think I think one of the uh, uh, m- many potential morals um, of the story of this um, this episode, for sure, is uh, you know people always have this uh, unrealistic assumption that you know, as you were saying, like good and great. People get disappointed when they're favorite artists turn out to be numbskulls you know <laughs> i don't prepare for disappointment is all i can say if that is if that is how you feel prepare for disappointment yeah i don't understand why people assume like that their favorite musicians or actors or whatever should have all of the right opinions or whatever or like mm. uh, have a complex understanding of world affairs in fact it's it's rather more likely that they won't and don't uh, you know, Jung, actually, in the show, Weird Studies, that I co-host with J.F. Martell, we did a two-parter on an essay by Carl Jung, which has an extremely boring title, I always forget. It's on the relations of analytic psychology to poetry, or maybe poetry to analytic psychology, in any event, a rather dry title. Um, but he makes a point that, you know, the way he thinks about the artwork is almost as a kind of a psychic parasite as a, an almost autonomous entity he calls it a complex that sort of feeds upon the psyche of the artist like in order to get it out you become as an artist almost literally possessed by the idea and this idea will siphon off your very vitality until it's gotten what it needs which is enough of your life's blood for it to be fully embodied and uh and, and fleshed out in its own right. And then, and Jung draws one conclusion from this, or, or one, uh, one result from this is that a lot of artists behave in remarkably infantile ways. Um, that uh, the, the creation of art is not always conducive to psychological good health. You might end up with somebody who has a childish, half-formed, very one-sided and unbalanced personality um, because their artwork has been steadily sucking the life and, and out of them. Um, that's maybe an overly dramatic way of expressing something that Jung puts a good deal better in that essay. I encourage people to read it. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, it's quite possible that artists are going to be the last fucking people you ever want to hear from about uh, the appropriate uh, position to take on, I don't know, West Bank settlement or uh, up the Alaskan pipeline or anything else. Um, as I say if you do believe that artists by virtue of creating things that you care about a good deal should therefore have good opinions about other things you care about, then prepare for disappointment. This idea of possession and this kind of uh, art as this kind of uh, leech, this vampire. Uh, yes. 
It's interesting because it's also yeah. kind of uh, reminiscent of the relationship between culture and nature, right? You know, it's uh, it's mm. like, uh, you know, how, how you know, um, cities uh, are originally just, you know, uh, they come out of like the human need for shelter, right? And they develop into these uh, complex uh, hyper-organisms that, uh, that just like, uh, you know, suck the life out of the earth and uh and uh, and spew out juju good or bad poisons <laughs> yeah 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 that's a really oh, you know that's a really interesting oh, man i've never thought of that that is a very interesting analogy or maybe it's something more than an analogy well i've, I've been i'm trying to write this book i call like i just call it the trollish theory right now but it, it tries to be kind of i don't know like an anthropology of human experience seen through like a folkloric uh like scandinavian perspectives and um uh, there's something kind of uh like interesting that uh that uh how the city kind of relates to people like uh there's um tacitus the the roman uh author mm. chronicler whatever uh he he says that the Germanic tribes, they, they worship Mercury above all gods. Of course, they're talking about, you know, Wotanas um, or something like that. You know, the proto-Wotan, proto-Odin. Right. And he says, like, that they consider the greatest sacrifice that they can make to him. That is uh, that is human life, you know, human mm. sacrifice. Mm. And, uh, you know, I used to live uh, just a few blocks away from Grand Central Station. And, of course, there's a big statue of Mercury sitting on top of the, on, on top of the building there. And you can see, like, mercurial imagery everywhere there. But it's probably because, like, in, in the aspect of, like, trade or something like that, mm. it's probably, like, the conscious decision, like a merchant deity. But also transport, travelers, communication, and so on. Many good reasons why um, he's a suitable deity to, to depict in a town like New York City. Uh, and I'm not going to get all schizo about it or anything like that. But um, I was uh, sitting on the subway train commuting to my crappy day job at the time. This is where I did a lot of the field recordings for um, earlier episodes of Brute Norse. So at some point, the train stops in the tunnel, and we have to sit there for, yeah, I don't remember how long. And as it turns out, somebody's, um, yeah, there's been a person on the tracks. I don't know if they jumped in front of the train or if somebody pushed them or if they fell, but, you know, anyway, somebody got run over by a train further down the line. Oh. And everything screeches to a halt. And at the time, I was toying with um, an Odinic reading of the subway station as this uh, weird liminal zone uh, inhabited by the bottom feeders of society. You know, mm, these very Odinic mm. figures like you know, vagrants and bums. Individuals that, you know, regular people don't really want to acknowledge. They treat them as ghosts almost. And I, I tried to devise like a divination system I used to, I tried to call hobomancy. It never really got anywhere, but, <laughs> but it was based on, I don't know, uh, esoteric readings of um, strange behaviors of junkies on my commute or, um, or, you know, the movements of rats, overheard conversations, stuff like that. But uh, I thought it was just so odd to be sitting on the subway train as a result of something really terrible happening, something really gruesome has occurred. Right. Uh, subway workers are like feverishly swabbing the floors when it rolled past the station where it happened. And uh, the city has just like, like, I don't know, like eaten up somebody's life and uh, metabol metabolized it into just like, a, like, like an everyday inconvenience. Being late to work, you know. So I was just kind of like, man, like, uh, you know, the... Even though, like, the city is uh, this syn synthetic artificial entity, 
Now I'm the one going on a tangent. It's <laughs> um, a very interesting tangent. Culture and nature ends up being similar to each other in odd ways, you know? That's fascinating. That's really interesting. What's more divine than the city, in a way? But the city turns out to be like a giant. Exact, exacting its blood price. Yes. Becomes like what is in Old Norse mythology, you know, called uh, called a jotun, you know, a giant, like, a, like an ogre, a troll. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, jotun, like, etymologically, comes from Proto-Germanic etunas, which means eater, mm. glutton, you hmm. know? So, so probably in the sense of a man-eater. And... Uh, I don't know, like, there's all sorts of, like, like things to say about this, both in the family tree of the gods. The gods derive from these creatures, ultimately, you know. They have, they have that blood in their veins. Oh, I love that. I love that way of thinking. I love that way of thinking. I mean, subways are mythically charged places. Uh, you know, Neil Gaiman's novel Neverwhere leans on that very heavily. But... Um, yeah, you think of these dark portals. I have distinct memories as a small child living in Toronto. Um, I lived in Toronto for a couple of years when my dad was on sabbatical. And the the nameless apprehensions that you would feel standing on a subway platform and there's that dark hole. And then you start feeling this hot breath coming out of it as the, you know, the, the train is pushing air. So the first thing you get is a smell and a feeling of this stirring breath and then you you hear the gathering roar and then you see the light you see the the thing begin to emerge from its hole and it comes bursting out of its hole with a roar and uh of course and then you get on it and it takes you to you know the eaton center or wherever it is you're going but like uh how could how how could we not see such a moment as itself charged with some kind of ancient and mythical power. Uh, and and the, this intuition of yours is the city exacting its blood price or being like a kind of a, a, an ogre or a giant eating a human being. Uh, and that's just part of its, and that's part of the life of the city. And as we're all sitting in a stalled train late for work, that's the, the burp, the hiccup of the city after it is consumed soul. Yeah. I love that way of thinking. And, you know, that's to bring it back to Wagner. Something I always say to students in my Wagner classes is this music is about our lives. You know, um, the historicist approach, which is of course the almost uh, universal one in the academic humanities where when you know it has much to offer the historicist approach being one where we're interested in saying what are the meanings that this music had for various historical populations that's what alex ross does in his book wagnerism um saying what wagner's music has meant for different groups of people over a wide span of time and there's nothing wrong with that approach obviously but uh at the same time when I say this music is about our lives, I also want to encourage people to think of this music not as something dead and gone and in and belonging to the past, but that, you know, when we see Wagner, uh, rather Wotan's distress after Fricka has just broken his whole worldview down 
to its component parts, as we see him writhing in agony, in existential agony, seeing all of his plans lying in rubble at his feet. In a sense, like understanding those moments in your own life where the same, where you have been in the same place, that's the name of the game. It's, all, it's fine to talk about how like this expresses German nationalism in the mid-19th century or whatever, but it is also expressing something about us, just as a city, of course, has a history that has nothing to do with giants and ogres and has everything to do with the, the patterns of human population and industry and... Uh, the course of nations, et cetera, et cetera. None of this is to negate any of those truths. But it's just as it is good to remind ourselves um, that this music tells us something about our lives, it's perhaps good also to remind ourselves that the cities and towns that we live in are also enacting uh, the oldest of stories, these mythic archetypes, and they're enacting them every day, every moment of our lives. I like that. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like a good That sounds like an ending. Perfect.
That was Laurel Primo with Torbjörn Bjelland's Brüremarsch, Torbjörn Bjelland's Bridal March, off her album Golden Loam. You'll find a link to the band camp in the show notes. When I reached out to Laurel to request a contribution for the podcast, she kindly revealed to me an amazing story of the transmission of this melody from the south of Norway through the American Midwest. This melody is even today quite obscure in Norway, but was transmitted to the US on a tour by Tone Hulbeckmo in 1987 and has lived on, I mean, in a very ideal situation in vernacular transmission throughout the diaspora in the United States. What a privilege for this musical tradition to be endowed with such a pool of talented young artists and a continuous flow of interest on both sides of the Atlantic. Anyway, you've been listening to the Brute Norse podcast where we walk backwards into the future. Um, You know, you probably know this already if you're a regular listener, but um, I've released a few publications in 2022. Uh, One of them uh, is a uh, Scandi Futurist lifestyle magazine, I call it, called The Fool's Mirror. Uh, I'm working on a second edition of it, I mean a second issue of it, which will be all about fermentation and uh, bacterial cultures and yeast and and all of that stuff, and how it ties into the archaeology and cultural history and the customs of of Scandinavia. Yeah. Uh, The current issue is about rock bothering. Got some stone lifting in there. We got some cup mark cults from Sweden that uh, only died out in um, quite recent historical memory. It's very compelling stuff. And uh, yeah, you can find that, of course, in, at brutenorse.bigcartel.com. And generally speaking, you can find uh, shirts and Patreon and all that crap also in the same spot in the show notes. You got a, got a link tree link down there which will take you to a hub where you can navigate to anything Brute Norse related. Patreon is also the way to go if you want to access the Brute Norse Discord community. We got a nice uh, bunch of freaks in there. And usually in these episodes, I try to uh, mention any relevant works or further reading and stuff like that also in, in, the, in the notes. So be sure to check them out. On that note, um, I got nothing else to say to you, but thank you for listening to this episode once again, and um, wish you a swell day. Hail Oxal! Okay.